I live in the middle of a forest. My house is on a wooden lot, and right after we moved in, I started noticing these indentations all over the yard. Well, at first, I didn't know what they were. I thought some kind of rodent was burrowing around in the pine straw. Finally, it dawned on me that these were tracks. I knew that some big critters were hiding nearby, but I had never seen them. They were nocturnal. And then one night, I met them. They were eating crab apples off a tree in the front yard. Evidently, the suburban sprawl had forced them out into the open. A family of deer were migrating back and forth across my yard. But I saw the tracks long before I saw the deer. Now, I could tell you that a unicorn lives in my backyard, or that Bigfoot prowls around in my backyard, or that a herd of wild buffalo crisscross across my yard. But with no tracks, would you believe me? You see, real animals leave tracks. Imaginary animals don't. And the same is true with faith. Real faith leaves behind tracks. It doesn't just exist in a person's imagination. It's not just a product of self-deception or wishful thinking. You'll see tracks. And this is the theme of the book of James. Faith leaves tracks. In fact, it leaves behind multiple tracks. Faith shows up in how we handle trials and temptation and money. It's more than just intentions. It provokes action. It affects how we treat folks less fortunate. Faith works. It affects how we talk and what we say. It doesn't just conform to the world, but it seeks wisdom from above. Faith walks humbly and prays fervently. Faith connects with other believers in meaningful ways. Real faith shows up in real life. And if your faith doesn't leave tracks, perhaps you got a unicorn faith. It's a nice sentiment. It's wishful thinking. It's an heirloom of the past, but the faith you claim doesn't exist. It's pretend. A unicorn faith is an imaginary faith. And the book of James was written to expose unicorn faith. If faith is real, you'll see its tracks all over your life. Chapter 1 begins, James. But which James? I can think of a lot of folks named James. In fact, here's the top 10 most famous people named James. Number 10, King James. You're reading this Bible tonight. Number 9, James Taylor. Number 8, James Bond. He's my favorite. Number 7 is Jesse James. Number 6, James Dobson. You've got to include Dr. Dobson in the list. Number 5. James Earl Jones. Number four, the James Gang. Number three, LeBron James. Number two, James Brown. And the real king of soul, number one, Pastor James. <laughs> Not a lot of difference there between James Brown and Pastor James, was there? There are also a few men in the Bible named James. Two of the twelve apostles were named James, the son of Alphaeus 
and the son of Zebedee. In fact, Zebedee's boy was later martyred by King Herod. You read about it in Acts chapter 12, 44 AD. Most Bible scholars believe that the author of the book of James was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 55 tells us that Mary had kids after Jesus. Four boys and at least two girls, contrary to what the Catholic Church says. And the oldest of these sons was James. This, though, means that James had some initial doubts about Jesus. During Jesus' earthly ministry, John 7 verse 5 tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. I'm sure James looked up to his big brother, but imagine having to admit that your sibling is the son of God. You know, there's an old maxim, familiarity breeds contempt. Think about it, Jesus and James, they played in the same sandbox. They were on the same little league team. They worked in the same carpenter shop. Imagine growing up in Jesus' shadow. I mean, James could never stack up. Like a lot of younger brothers, he might have carried a resentful chip on his shoulders. And yet we know what opened his eyes. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he made several special appearances. One visit was to his half-brother, James. Jesus apparently cared about his kid brother. And when James realized that Jesus had conquered death... Suddenly it dawned on him. It all started to make sense. Why Jesus always made those A pluses in conduct while he had C's. That Jesus was God. Instantly James went from a doubting brother to a devoted believer. And James grew rapidly in his faith. In short order, he became one of the leaders at the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, it was this James who took charge of the church council. He was known as a man of extreme devotion. His piety was proclaimed throughout the church. He actually had a nickname, James the Just. Eusebius, the early church historian, he made this following statement. James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. Well, in 62 AD, James died a martyr's death. The Jews took him to the highest point of the temple without a parachute. They ordered him to recant his faith before all of the people. Instead, he used the opportunity to boldly preach the gospel. The Jews got so angry at him, they pushed him off the pinnacle of the temple. And when he survived the fall, they beat him to death with clubs as he knelt and prayed for them. When James says... Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Oh, there's some street cred behind those words. Hey, James's faith had left some deep tracks in his life. He introduces himself, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now recall, James is the blood brother of our Lord on his mother's side. And if a family affiliation ever counted for anything, this would be the time. I mean, think about it. James could have flaunted this status. He could have called himself the Savior's closest sibling. James, the kid brother of God. Instead, he refers to himself 
as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than name drop and pull rank, he was content to be a servant. After spending his whole life in Jesus' shadow, this is his chance to take advantage of the relationship, but no way. James says, I'm only a servant. I'm a loved servant of my Lord Jesus Christ. James knew, like everyone else, that he was a sinner saved by grace. It was an honor enough for him to be a love slave, a bondservant of his Lord. James now worshipped and served the brother he once resented. And he writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now twice in Old Testament times, Israel was conquered by invading armies and scattered across foreign lands. Many Jews never returned home. And so little Jewish communities had sprang up all around the world. But as the gospel spread, it reached these dispersed communities. And many of the Jews believed in Jesus. James wants to write them a letter of encouragement. The fact that James's letter is addressed exclusively to the 12 tribes of Israel could mean that it was written prior to the gospel reaching the Gentiles. This would mean that James was written probably as early as 45 AD, which makes it more than likely the first New Testament book to actually be penned. And James cuts right to the chase. He speaks to the felt needs of his audience. For no matter where these Jews might live, they had become Christians. They had put their faith in Christ. And the first believers were strangers in a strange land. They were blazing a new trail. They were cutting a path where there was no path. The Christian way of life was sure to stand out and draw fire. You can bet the early Christians suffered heavy trials for their faith in Jesus, which is where James starts. Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice it's not if you fall into various trials. It's when you fall into various trials. All Christians will face trials. I wish I could tell you that being a Christian immunized you from hardship, but it doesn't. James says various trials will arise, not just one type from one source. You know, sometimes we suffer for our own mistakes, don't we? At other times, the suffering is unjust. On other occasions, the specific reason is a mystery other than the fact we're living in a fallen world. And at times, we're privileged to suffer for Jesus' sake. We suffer various trials. This is why we shouldn't fret over the source of the trial, but rather fixate on its purpose. This is how James suggests that we can count it all joy. I like how the New English translation puts this. It says, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. The Phillips New Testament renders it, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Wait a minute. Trials? Nothing but joy? Welcome them as friends? Are you kidding me? Let me repeat it. The only reason to be happy over a trial is if you're locked in on its purpose. Which is why James says, Knowing this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking nothing. Trials produce patience or endurance. The Greek word is hupomeno, to remain under, to stick it out, to persevere. Trials teach you to stick it out in hard times. Trials are like resistance training. There's some pushback on your faith. Hey, if your faith never got any pushback, how could it grow stronger? When our faith is pushed, that's when it gets muscle. And it's endurance, a long obedience in the same direction that matures or perfects God's work, perfects God's work in our lives. Real faith grows only under pressure. It's been said, no one sharpens a knife on a stick of butter. If you want a sharp knife, you need some friction. And God uses trials to sharpen our faith. For a time, seafood distributors who ship codfish from New England to markets across the country had a problem. In the beginning, they tried to ship frozen cod, but the freezing process robbed the meat of its flavor. The answer was to ship the fish alive in a tank of seawater. But even then, the fish would arrive mushy and tasteless. That's when someone had an idea. You see, the cod's natural enemy is the catfish. So a couple of catfish were placed in the tank along with the cod. All the while the cod were on the road, they were chased by the catfish. The vigilance it took to survive the catfish kept the cod as fresh and delicious as when they were caught. And this is what trials will do for our faith. God dumps a catfish or two in our tank from time to time to keep our faith from growing flabby. To have some pushback, some resistant training to make our faith strong. Note verse 3. James says the Christian knows this truth. And that word implies an intuitive knowledge. Now think about it. Why would Christians know that trials produce endurance? Why would we know that intuitively? I'll tell you why. Every Christian has been to the cross. And it's at the cross of Christ. It's there that God turned the worst trial into the supreme triumph. The heart of our salvation teaches us that God works miracles through trials. It's His way. Did you know that every miracle in the Bible began as a trial, as a problem? Every miracle began as a problem. Recall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow to the idol. They were thrown in the fiery furnace. But all that burned on their bodies were the ropes that kept them bound. And this is the result of trials and tribulations in the life of the believer. God uses the fire not to burn us, but to burn off the superfluous stuff that's holding us back. Notice verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you're in the midst of a trial, ask God for wisdom not to waste that trial. I think all too often we waste our trials. Ask God to show you what you're supposed to be learning from that trial. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt is spiritual flip-flop. I trust God, but I don't. I trust God, but why am I worrying? It's that flip-flop. James compares doubt to an ocean wave that's governed by tides and winds. In other words, by circumstances 
Real faith is unaffected by the situation. He says, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Write it down. Doubt takes you out from under God's spout. The double-minded man, let him not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Doubt will cause you to miss out on God's blessing. Doubt is a robber. Verse 8 says of the doubter, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The Greek phrase is double-minded. It means facing two directions. That's what it means, facing two directions. In his classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan refers to a doubter as Mr. Facing Both Ways. It's the name that he gives him. In other words, he refuses to decide. He, he sits on the fence. He's a fence straddler. On Monday, he walks with God, but by Friday, he's sucked right back into sinful pleasures. And in facing both directions, he's giving 100% to neither. Hey, he needs to be all in. He's an unhappy saint, and he's a miserable sinner. Verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. In Christ, we're all on equal ground. The poor man is rich spiritually. And the rich man realizes that his material wealth means nothing spiritually. Money has no effect on a person's spiritual status. No less of an authority on the subject of finance than the Wall Street Journal once printed. Money is a universal provider of everything except happiness and a universal passport to everywhere but heaven. He says, for no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Some of you ladies received roses for Valentine's. It's now less than a month later, and I'll bet they've withered. I'll bet you've thrown them out. Their beauty was temporary. And so is this life. As Shakespeare penned, golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers come to dust. Death is the great equalizer. When it's your time to die, all the money in the world won't buy you God's approval. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In heaven, a special crown will be awarded to those believers who resisted temptation. I want to rack up as many crowns as I can. One way to do so is to resist temptation. It's interesting. Crowns belong to royalty, to people who rule. Crowns are worn by members of the ruling class. And it's also true spiritually. Aren't you tired of being a slave to sin? God wants us to be free. He wants us to overcome sin. He wants us to be able to rule over our lives and our passions. The power to resist temptation is a track or it's a mark of faith. Verse 13, Now let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Hey, you'll never overcome your sin if you blame God 
for your failures. Don't play the blame game with God. You know, I've heard folks talk like God was supposed to just reach down and grab them by their belt loops and jerk them right out of the temptation. Not so. A temptation situation is your choice. It's a test for you to choose what you need to do. And sin is a progression. Temptation is a progression. It says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, you get ensnared in a web of temptation, and it's nobody's fault but your own. The chief culprit is your own lust. You know, it was Luther who said, evil thoughts are like birds. I can't keep them from flying over my head, but I can keep them from nesting in my hair. I can keep from dwelling on an evil thought. I can keep from mulling it over and savoring it. Here's the reason. For when that desire that you've cultivated conceives, it gives birth to sin. When an evil inclination, you know, thoughts and inclinations, these aren't evil in and of themselves, but when we hold on to them, when we harbor them, and they meet an opportunity, then all of a sudden they conceive a full-blown action. Sin then comes out in the open. In other words, when the egg of desire is fertilized by the opportunity for sin, then presto, you got a baby on your hands. And hiding your sin then is about as difficult as hiding a baby. He says, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. If you never repent and turn from the act of sin, death results. Your life spirals downward. Full-blown sin turns into a full-grown lifestyle of wickedness. You see, sin is a slippery slope. And it always ends in destruction. Hey, sin always results in unintended consequences. Write that down. It always results in unintended consequences. You didn't plan this or that. You just wanted to have fun. One day you wake up in a place you never wanted to go with people you really don't like. Suffering ramifications you certainly didn't plan. Facing a future you never dreamed. Verse 16 and 17 Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And here's the key to victory in the temptation situation. You won't say yes to sin if you're convinced that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Satan runs a second-hand shop. You know that? I mean, why settle for seconds when God supplies the very best? Each of the devil's temptations is a shortcut. You need to trust in God's way. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Once an impulsive buyer froze his credit cards in a block of ice. This was good strategy. Before he could make a purchase, he had to wait until the ice melted. It gave him time to think. And this is what we need when tempted. We need to think. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Verse 18. Of his own will he brought 
of his own will he brought forth us by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here James is speaking of the new birth. We receive the life of God when we trust in his word. And this makes for a special breed. We're born again. James uses an agrarian metaphor here. We're the first fruits, he says, of a spiritual harvest. We're a new race of humanity, never before seen on this earth. Why? God lives in you. That makes you something special. And if God dwells within us, then his tracks will be evident in our lives. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. You've heard it before, God created human beings with two ears and one mouth for a reason. Apparently, he wants us to do twice as much listening as we do talking. Did you hear of the linguist that spoke multiple languages? He was given the ultimate compliment. Someone said he knew how to stay silent in seven languages. It's easier to speak and spout than it is to listen and learn. He says, in addition, be slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, rarely do we achieve God's justice and God's fairness by venting our own anger. Our wrath only bruises and hurts and further alienates. We only make matters worse. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness. You know, in the Greek language, it literally reads, get the wax out of your ears. And lay aside any overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness or with a yieldedness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice it's not the spoken word or the heard word, but it's the implanted word that saves us. It's the word that takes root in our lives, that's held on to by our will, that captures our desires. This is what saves us, the implanted word. Like an Air Force pilot A fighter pilot that locks in on his enemy target. He locks in and then he pulls the trigger. The implanted word is when our faith locks in on that promise from God. and doesn't let go. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I like what D.L. Moody said. He said, every Bible should be bounded with shoe leather. He meant that just hearing it is not enough. The Bible is for doing. Here's what can happen in a well-taught church. We can become like wine tasters. We can become professional connoisseurs who sort of sip the wine and just roll it around in our mouth without really consuming much. We don't take the word to heart. We don't let it shake up our lives. We don't let it get into our system. We hear, but we remain unaltered. We say that we love the word, but in reality we're deceived. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. It's like the guy who glances in the mirror and he's after eating a hot dog and he's got ketchup all over his face, but he does nothing about it. This is the hearer only. He's always gaining information that he never acts on. I mean, some of us, we know the Bible out the wazoo. 
I mean, all kinds of issues have been identified for us. But have we done anything about them? We know so much truth, but have we applied it to our lives? We've seen ourselves in the mirror, but have we cleaned ourselves up? Don't stop coming to Bible study. Just start putting it all into practice. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The law of bondage was the Mosaic law. It provided rules without the power to obey those rules. But the new covenant is the perfect law of liberty. It not only provides us wisdom, but power. Not only tells us what to do, but it gives us the power to do it. The love of God makes us a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. In other words, faith that grabs hold of a heart will take control of a wagging tongue. Here's one of those tracks that will show up in your life. If you truly know God. Finally, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you want to see faith tracks, here's two of them. A compassion for the weak and a desire for purity. As far back as I can remember, until the day that she died... Every Sunday afternoon, my dad would drive downtown to visit his invalid sister. She was in a nursing home. My Aunt Anne lived there in the nursing home. Dad would always buy her a Coke and he'd chit-chat. I think one of the reasons he liked going down there was all the old ladies would whistle at him and tell him how cute he was and so forth. On occasion, I'd go down there too. I kind of enjoyed the attention myself. During the week, though, Anne would call the house incessantly just to make sure that Dad was coming for his visit on Sunday. She was lonely, and she just wanted to talk. And I'm ashamed to admit it now, but whenever I answered the phone and Ann was on the other end, I'd get annoyed. But Dad would always quote this verse. He'd remind us that pure religion visits orphans and widows. Hey, we can talk all day about God's love, but real faith leaves tracks. Chapter 2 begins... My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, in the church, we shouldn't play favorites. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and then say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The flight to heaven is not divided up into first class and coach. That's Delta. That's not the kingdom of God. Jesus accepts me just as I am and right where I'm at. And this is how we should accept others. Don't treat the rich or the hip or the beautiful person any differently than the rest. The banker and the bag lady should both get equal love. While in South Africa, Mohandas Gandhi was impressed with the teachings of Jesus. 
He actually thought about converting to Christianity until he went to a church. He saw the prejudice among its members. And this is what he concluded. If Christians have caste differences of their own, I might as well stay a Hindu. How sad for anyone in God's family to feel like a second-class Christian. Don't you be guilty of making them feel that way. Once a street person went to join a church, the pastor wasn't sure that the church wanted her type. He told her to give it a week, think it over. But the week went by and still no decision. He then said that he needed another week, and on and on this went. Finally, he said he needed to take it to the board of the elders, and then he would come back and he'd let the woman know if she could be a member of the church. Finally, in prayer, the Lord spoke to the woman and told her, My child, don't worry about joining that church. I've been trying for 20 years, and they won't let me in either. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts that they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? You remember in Luke chapter 4 verse 18, Jesus said that the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. I mean, part of his mission was to bring good news to the poor. But the rich are those who are often threatened by Jesus' message. The poor tend to welcome it. The rich are threatened by it. They've made an idol out of their money or their ability to make it. It's an attack on their God to assume that real fulfillment can't be found in riches and in wealth, but only in Jesus. It's amazing how two little dimes held up to your eyes can keep you from seeing a big mountain. Or even God. And yet this is the effect that wealth can have on our faith. Riches can blind us to God. Jesus said in Matthew 19 verse 24, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, most people dream of being rich, but spiritually speaking, excessive wealth can be a disadvantage. Verse 8 if you really fulfill the royal law according to, to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now it's not that we can't have close friends within the church just as long as it doesn't become a closed circle of friends. You can have a close circle but don't let it be a closed circle. The church is no place for cliques. And in a few weeks, we're going to have these big picnics out on the back lawn. And we're all going to gather. And here's what I'm hoping I don't see. I'm hoping I don't see you and your little friends, your little clique, all clustered over on one side over there, not fellowshipping and not reaching out to everybody else. I hope that we can truly get out of our own little circles and we can begin to reach new people and we can begin to encourage other people in their, in their walk and in their fellowship of the church. The royal law in the church, the royal law, in other words, the law that reigns above all other laws, James says, is to love your neighbor. For whoever shall keep the whole law 
and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. I mean, this is the problem with living under the law. You can't pick and choose which laws you want to ascribe to. When a person lives under the law, he lives under the whole enchilada. Condemnation is inevitable. No human is perfect, and yet the law, the whole law, requires perfection. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do, not, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, break one of the 613 laws, and you're guilty of violating them all. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. You're not going to be, you don't want to be judged by the law of Moses. But we'll all be judged by the law of liberty. Do we love one another? God hasn't called us to live by law. He's called us to live by love. And this is how we'll be judged as believers. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Boy, showing a little mercy will do more to change a person's life than insisting on strict judgment. Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now here's someone who professes faith, but there's no evidence of him possessing faith. He talks a good talk. Isn't faith more than words? What about works? In essence, he's asking, what constitutes true saving faith? And in verse 15, he tells us what true saving faith looks like. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And on your blessing means nothing to the person. It's just hollow words. They have real needs. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, real faith leaves tracks. A legitimate faith, a real faith, leaves an imprint. You'll act on what you believe. Real faith, saving faith, The faith that gets you to heaven is a commitment to the point of action. Charles Blondin was a famous acrobat. And on June the 30th, 1859, he crossed Niagara Falls on a three-inch rope. 1,100 feet across the falls and 160 feet above them. Over that summer, Blondin set up camp there at Niagara Falls, and he performed numerous stunts on the tightrope. He did a backward somersault on the tightrope. He crossed blindfolded. He actually pushed a wheelbarrow across the rope. He walked it on stilts. He crossed at night. He even cooked a meal, cooked an omelet on a portable stove, and dropped it down to a boat below sitting on the water. But Charles Blondin's most amazing feat on the wire came on September the 15th, 1860, the next year. Before crossing that day, he turned to the crowd that was watching him and he asked, Do you believe that I can carry a man across the rope on my back? The crowd roared, Yes, we believe. Well, that's when Blondin asked for a volunteer. And yet of all the people who said they believed, none would climb on Blondin's back. Their talk was cheap. 
their lack of action betrayed their claim of faith. Finally, though, one man stepped up. The crowd didn't know it, but it was Blondin's manager, Harry Colcord. Harry had already tied his future to Blondin's daring, so why not go all out and risk his very life? And this should be our reaction if we truly trust Jesus. We'll climb on the back of our Savior and we'll let Him carry us. We'll tie everything in our life to Jesus. Real faith, saving faith, faith that gets you to heaven is not a sideline faith. It's a faith that acts on what it believes. Verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. It's true. Faith is faith and works are works. Don't get them mixed up. Don't try to turn faith into another work. You're made right with God, not by what you do, but by what Jesus has done and your faith in his work. Salvation is by faith alone. But if you're really saved, faith will never be alone. There'll be tracks. Your faith will be accompanied by works and loving action. Now, some, po- some people point to a supposed contradiction here between Paul and James. Especially in verse 24, we'll read it in a moment, where James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That seems to oppose Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When Martin Luther read verse 24, he got so upset with the book of James that he called it a right strawy epistle. He included it in the canon scripture, but he failed to put it on the same level with the rest of the New Testament. It was strawy rather than golden. This so-called conflict between Paul and James clears up when you realize the vocation of the two authors. Remember, Paul was a theologian. He was a lawyer by trade. He was adept at breaking down abstract ideas. He deciphered steps and causes. James, though, was the son of a carpenter. He cared about the end result. The steps and the procedures you followed while building a chair don't really matter if you end up with a handsome, sturdy piece of furniture. And this is how these two men dealt with salvation. Paul broke it down into cause and effect. Faith alone is the cause. Spiritual fruit and good works are the results. Whereas James had a more comprehensive view of salvation. He was so sure that faith produced works that he saw salvation as a package deal. If a life didn't show good works, then it obviously didn't possess real faith. You see, Paul's letters are like spiritual schematics. They break down the inner workings, the underpinnings, of faith in the Christian life. Whereas James sees God's work as a building project. It's not over till the trim is finished and the punch list is complete. Paul x-rays the roots of faith. James eyeballs the fruits of faith. Two different approaches. Paul says that faith comes first and should never be confused with works. And he's right. But James says that works always follow faith. That works are evidence of faith. And he's right too. Package them together and you see the complete picture. A faith that saves 
is also a faith that works. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I mean, faith is obviously more than just an intellectual assent. Even the demons are orthodox in their doctrine. Just an agreement on the facts doesn't constitute true faith. Here's a sidebar. The demons tremble, James says. That word means to bristle up. It's the idea of a hair-raising experience. In other words, a demon's faith in God doesn't save him. It scares him. He believes that God's judgment is real and it causes the hair on the back of his neck to stand straight up. He says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And here he gives an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? I mean, if Abraham had not obeyed God, how could you say that he really trusted him? If you pray for rain tomorrow and then leave the house without an umbrella, you didn't pray in faith. Real faith will act on what it believes. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You go back and read this in Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. And you'll discover that Abraham was declared right with God 22 years before he was told to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. That came later in chapter 22. The point being that his faith came first, but his faith was real faith, and that was later confirmed by his faithful works. Abraham was a great example. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And in the context of what James is saying here, he's right. If faith inevitably produces works, then ultimately you can't have real faith without works. Again, Paul breaks down the Christian life into parts, whereas James sees it as a continuum. He's not worried about where faith ends and where works begin, as Paul is. He sees both in an unbroken chain. One doesn't end and the other begin. That's Paul's concern, not James's. In James' mind, we're justified by both faith and works. How can you separate the root from the fruit would be James' argument. He gives us another example. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Same idea. Her trust in God provoked her to help the Jews, the Jewish spies that had come into Jericho. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now this is interesting, because here we have a biblical definition for death. Death is when the spirit departs from the body. All kinds of ways to define death, but here's the biblical definition. It's when the spirit departs from the body. Once the spirit vacates, the body's an empty shell. It's dead. And likewise, a faith that's lost its heart and its guts and its vigor and its effort is also as good as dead. 
That's the point James is making. 